Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. So good morning, good afternoon to you. How's it all going today, Kristen? Um, you know, honestly, I'm in a little bit of a sleepy phase. How about you? Yeah, same. It's like that like early winter here, like drizzle grayness, and I'm just like cocooned here with banjo. Mm -hmm. It's really nice, honestly, but definitely sleepy. Yeah, the cocoon, the winter cocoon life has claimed me and all I want to do is like hibernate and read books and do lazy yoga in front of my fireplace. Mm. Um, It's a whole mood right now. But what listener question do we have for today? Yeah, so Alyssa T reached out. Thank you, Alyssa, and wanted to know what our favorite witchy subjects to study and research are right now. So Kristen, what are your thoughts? I love this question because they're always changing, Um, but I know that you and I, Kate, have talked quite a bit about our resistance or just like our overall disinterest in certain gods and masculine deities, uh, partially because so much has already been said about them and I don't know, goddess stories are just way more interesting (laughs) in my opinion, but I just started reading Sophie Strand's new book, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, which um, among other gods discusses Dionysus and Merlin and, you know, the hero's journey beyond the Campbell version. So more on this amazing book later, but listeners, if you're also trying to view the masculine through a new lens, um, maybe grab yourself a copy. It would be a really great winter read. Um, and then personally, I've just been trying to learn more about fixed stars and include them in my practice, including the 15 Bohemian fixed stars um, as they relate to magical history and ritual. But what about you? What have you been studying, Kate? Um, You know, well, I've been continuing my studies in astrology with Rebecca Gordon, so I'm really reading any and all astrological content I can get my hands on. And mm-hmm. this is like, uh, you know, I've been loving Annabelle Gatt's Moon Signs book, a few new Instagram accounts that I've found. Um, I think, Kristen, you sent me one that I just love so much. Um, mm-hmm. But if listeners, if you have any favorite books about the stars, please send them to me on Instagram. I'd love to hear about it. And then... You know, I just love researching and reading about plant magic, um, which we talk about here a lot. Um, I just finished my second year of apprenticeship with Robin Rose this fall. So I just love to do additional plant reading in the winter, especially because it kind of helps me feel connected, um, connected to the natural world in the city during the kind of barren time. Um, 
And, you know, I was so inspired by our conversation with uh, Madame Pamita. So I've been reading more Polish folktales and trying to do a little bit more research there. Uh, I've got a really interesting history book about Russian and Slavic witchcraft. Um, I'm excited to share some findings with you, Kristen. Yeah, yeah. I loved her and her books so much. Mm -hmm. You'll definitely have to share some of your favorite stories, um, maybe in a future storytime episode. That would be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, but Kristen, I'm really excited about our guest and our conversation today that we have for you listeners. And Kristen, I know you are too. So do you mm -hmm. want to go ahead and introduce her and her work? Of course. Chowan Ku is a writer of the intersection of pop culture, the occult, and futurism. Her TikTok, at Chowanku, is one of the most popular occult accounts on the platform, and she also interviews some of the most distinguished occultists and witches in the English-speaking world on her YouTube, Witches and Wine. In the past year, she has helped co-facilitate crypto rituals, which are public magic rituals done directly on the Ethereum blockchain. Her new book, Spellbound, available as a hardcover on May 3rd, 2022, has over 60 beautiful illustrations specifically commissioned for the book and details of her journey from an atheist witch into one of the most visible East Asian practitioners of both Eastern and Western occult traditions. In this conversation, we discuss digital witchcraft, the blockchain, group rituals and spells, discovering the occult, Han, atheism, TikTok, Hecate, and more. Chowan Ku joins us from her home in New York City via Zoom. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lisenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. And today we have a very special guest with us, Chowan Ku. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. And I just want to start off by saying that your book, Spellbound, is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, you know, not just the physical book and your words, of course, but the pictures within and the way this book has been laid out just feels very magical, which I have no doubt was intentional. Um, and we have so many questions for you about your book. But before we get into those, would you mind sharing your sun, moon, and rising signs with us? So my sun sign is Pisces. I'm a 10th house mm -hmm. Pisces sun. Uh, my moon, I have an opposition to my sun. It's Virgo, fourth house Virgo. And then my mm -hmm. ascendant is Gemini. Amazing. Love that. And can you tell us a bit about you and your work in your own words? Wow. So it's always evolving, but I would say that if I had to really label it right now, um, I like to just frivolously say, you know, I do like lip gloss, K-pop, witch stuff. Um, but I also talk a lot about the occult. Um, I have a YouTube channel where I've interviewed who I think are some of the coolest English-speaking occultists in the world. I speak a lot about Korean spirituality because I am ethnically Korean. I'm Korean-American. And I'm really big about futurism, technology. That's my day job. So I'm professionally in the Web3 space, very focused on 
what augmented reality looks like, how we can utilize technology uh, to further, not just in general, like having fun and playing video games and like the metaverse, but also realizing that the occult is often called the technology itself. And so how can we utilize all the technologies in the world? And that's in a nutshell what I do. I love in the book how you talk about technology as like even the most simple thing like fire to cook the food. And I like closed my book when I was reading it. I was like, wait, yes, of course that's technology. Like very cool. And and how did you find the world of magic and the occult? I like to joke and it's not really a joke. It's actually real. (laughs) I like to joke that basically it was a bunch of failed Tinder dates. And I think that a lot of people, (laughs) they denigrate, well, actually they absolutely denigrate people, especially feminine energy people who get into magic because of things like love. It seems as though getting into witchcraft and getting to the cult is only valid if there's like a bigger spiritual reason. But sometimes, a lot of times, people get into the occult because they need to win a court case. Their rent is due in the next two weeks, and they need cash quick. They just broke up with somebody that they thought they were going to spend the rest of their life with, and they want to get over the heartbreak. There's so many different reasons that are very practical and mundane that people get into witchcraft. And people don't seem to give it enough cred. And I was one of those witches who got in because I had three failed Tinder relationships in a row. And I totally admit they were happening at the same time, but I, but still, okay. Like, I, was like, <laughs> I was like, not even one? And I thought, okay, Susan at the yoga studio, because at that point, that was sort of my reference of witchcraft. <laughs> it was more new age. Susan at the yoga studio seems to be happy. Usually I would make fun of Susan at the yoga studio because I had prided myself on being a skeptic, an atheist, like a Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Fry, atheist experience, podcast (laughs) listening atheist. Uh, But at that point, when your heart is breaking, you're like, I'll try anything. I will Mm -hmm. try anything. And then I started with chakra meditations and moved on from there. And each time I did something, that was vaguely magical, I thought, wait a second, this is compelling. Like, I can't totally discount it. And from there, my curiosity grew and grew. But I've always retained that that atheist, like, hold on a second. Let's let's step back a little bit. Let's not go too deep in the woo-woo. That energy has always been there. Uh, But without a doubt, witchcraft has been so compelling, and I still haven't discounted it. I always say, that the moment that I realize that witchcraft is no longer compelling, that it doesn't work, etc., I will drop it. I have no skin in the game in terms of proving it's true because I'm still at heart an atheist girl. But so far, it hasn't. So I still keep with it. And what does it mean to be a futurist witch and to engage in magic from that perspective? Hmm. So I think I'm just keeping the lineage of what I consider to be really authentic witchcraft. I'm just continuing it because for so much of history, it was the witch who was the futurist. They were the ones who were cutting edge when it came to herbal things. They were the ones who were cutting edge when it came to spiritual matters. They were cutting edge in so many different things and technologies. So for me right now, when I say futurist witch, I think it's easiest to describe it as I am very much into the role that 
technology plays. I mean, this podcast is being recorded right now on a bunch of you know hardware that's using electricity, using code written in zeros and ones. Um, I have a Nintendo Switch next to me. I have my <laughs> phone next to me. We're basically carrying around a supercomputer in our back pocket. We're cyborgs. There's a TED Talk that I love. And I think the title of the TED Talk is called We Are Cyborgs Now. And the idea was that, well, of course, if you're carrying an iPhone in your back pocket and most people will, you know, even if they've already gotten to work, they will take the subway back <laughs> to, to their apartment if they forgot their phone. That's how connected we are to this technology. It's an extension of ourselves. And that technology creates a type of wormhole. Mm -hmm. It's we're connected to more people and to more ideas and to everything. Things that would have basically gotten us burned even 50 years ago. Things that were beyond everybody's imagination. Uh, so for me, being a futurist witch is to be actually a very authentic, true to the word witch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we really do put so much energy into those devices. Like how many times is it opened a day? It's kind of wild to think about. <laughs> no, absolutely. And also we organize this conversation via email, just sending little sparks out into the ether to plan. <laughs> we did. And I think a lot of people forget that witches back in the day before we had smartphones and stuff. And even if they didn't have a wand, what did they use? They used their finger. The finger was like an antenna, an extension of their energy. Now we use our fingers tapping on our phones. So this antenna, this magic wand, that energy is focused on what? It's focused on this technology, this wormhole, this literal wormhole that defies so many laws of like time space in our back pocket. So to me, I'm just like, if that's not magic, I don't know what is. And so you have a beautiful book out in the world right now that we've touched on just briefly uh, called Spellbound, A New Witch's Guide to Crafting the Future. So can you tell us and our, our listeners about it? Who is this book for? The book was conceived for a new witch. So it was really important to me that this book is a nice survey of the type of witchcraft that I feel is not being represented as much. There's plenty of books out there about doing a certain type of witchcraft, a certain type of occult. I would say that this book is very eclectic. It involves uh, nice little tidbits from people I consider to be, again, these really cool English-speaking English occultists and mages. Um, so it's not just me. Of course, it's being grounded by my experience, but I have lots of different experts also kind of chiming in and giving their two cents. And above all, I knew that it was very important that the visual aspect was a was the star of the book because so much of witchcraft is about the vibe. It is aesthetic because witchcraft is more than just this abstract, you know, mumbling of words. Witchcraft is a holistic experience. And so much of that experience is what feels witchy. And oftentimes what feels witchy is what looks witchy. Which is why I don't like it when people are, you know, talking smack about Instagram witches or witch talk or anything like that. I'm just like, but this is witchy. Like, literally, you do things that feel cool and witchy because it gets you in the mindset to do witchcraft, to do the occult stuff. So my book has over 60 plus full color illustrations uh, done by a very talented artist named Demetria uh, Kring, Kring Demetria. 
They're so beautiful. And also, glamour magic is fun and it works. So mm-hmm. it's important. <laughs> oh, it totally, absolutely. Well, it's worked very well for me. So I'm blue eyeshadow. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> Lip gloss, blue eyeshadow, glitter, all that stuff. And also, what people don't always think about when they think of glamour magic, because the word glamour is very loaded, is that mm. glamour magic can also help, for example, if you're a protester and you don't want the cops to pick you up. You can do glamour magic to become less visible. You can do glamour magic so that you can go in and out of spaces more safely because people don't notice you as much. So glamour magic isn't just about normative standards of beauty. Glamour magic is also very practical. I actually wrote down this really beautiful quote from your book um, where you said, glamour magic makes this occult body visible. It's the technology you use to literally express your hidden self on your skin slash sleeve, to bring the occult body up from the depths using clothes and makeup and movement as tools. And I just thought that was so beautiful. What I learned about glamour magic is that glamour magic is an extension. It's literally... uh, When people talk about, oh, I got these tattoos because they represent on my skin how I feel on the inside. Glamour magic is very much that as well. Because if we accept the premise that we're just, you know, spiritual beings having an experience in a meat suit, this meat suit is malleable. And it's very malleable, not just on the physicality of it, but also the energy we imbue with it. So the idea of the occult body, uh, I first heard about it from Alkisistemek who is one of the co-founders of Scarlet Imprint, which is a Mm. great independent publishing house. And she's also a Bhutto dancer. And so she deals very much with body. And this is an aspect of witchcraft, of Western witchcraft, at least in the occult, that has been ignored because so much of witchcraft has been about, and just spirituality and new age stuff in general has been about this spirit and kind of throwing away the body. Oh, we don't want to deal with the body. The body is a baggage. It's something that a burden that we bear and we want to disconnect from it. Versus the occult body says, no, we want to incorporate this body as much as we can because this is the vehicle for everything. And so putting a very strong emphasis on body, however you want to define how you do that, I think is one of the key ingredients to doing really effective magic. I've had a copy of the red goddess from them in my like to read pile. And I like, can't wait to get to it. Their imprint's so cool. It is very cool. So your book begins with an opening, right? And within that, right, you have a passage that reads quote, your body is built to work with your mind so that you can focus on your true will. I snatched that phrase from Thelema, a philosophy developed by occultist Alistair Crowley. Crowley was not a woke person, but magic is about saving the slippery baby while throwing out the grungy bathwater. And I just love those words and wanted to know if you could expand on that a little bit and um, explain why you included this mention at the start of your book. That was inspired by witch talk. So (laughs) I'm pretty active on TikTok and there's a section on TikTok, the hashtag witch talk, occult talk, um, very popular. 
And it's a group of young, well-intentioned, you know, very passionate new witches. And what I really enjoy about these new witches is that they're bringing their whole self, you know, they would say, you know, I'm saying it with my full chest that I am a witch. So that means that there is not a divide between their regular mundane lives and the witchy stuff that they do. And so they're also bringing in a lot of their activism, a lot of their beliefs, political beliefs, etc. One of the things I've realized, however, is that when we bring in human, always changing uh, categorizations and ideas into something like magic, and magic is based upon energy that's amoral, a constant, it's kind of, uh, it doesn't really, the basic principles, the first principle of engineering of magic, you know, like what makes a great bridge, a great bridge, like that foundational principle, what makes great magic, great magic, it stays pretty constant. So when we start bringing in very time context specific things into the foundations of magic, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. There's a lot of mismatch. And it's me being like, okay, you know, for sure, you know, there have been lots of things that have happened in magic where from a human uh, scale, not great, not woke, not about it, not about that life. But are we going to throw away all the gold diamonds, the nuggets, you know, all that for that? It's almost like, uh, let's save what is worth saving because also magic is not about this binary thinking, which is actually, to me, very religious. Binary thinking where everything is black, white, and evil, and good. These things, I think, are things that witches transcend naturally. And that's why witches have been feared, because witches were always straddling that space where, are you really here or are you really there? Are you really on our side? Are you on their side? And the witch always says, I'm on my side. <laughs> and society and whatever structures the powers in place were just like not into that you're either with us or against us and witches are just like i'm not with or against you know i am right there in the middle in this liminal space and so to just discard things uh, because some parts of it are disagreeable i think actually goes against the fundamental ethos of what it is to be a witch I love that definition. And we love the liminal on this podcast. We're always returning to there and to the fringe. Um, and your book, it's it's a blend of Eastern and Western magic and occult perspectives. And it combines this emphasis on the digital world that we spoke about. So would you be able to speak a little bit um, about magic and digital spaces and how you work with these energies in your craft? Magic in digital spaces, I feel, is just a another layer on top of how magic has always been done. Magic has always been done in, people call it the fifth dimension or whatever, it's the imagination, dream worlds. Well, what we've done through the power of human ingenuity is to bring that dream world, to bring that imagination, and in a lot of ways, half-physicalize it through things like virtual reality, augmented reality. We've utilized a more, I would say, human, but still inspired technology, like uh, Web3 things, uh, like the Oculus headset, um, metaverse things, Web3 technologies that do include cryptocurrency and NFTs because they help facilitate a lot of what's going to be happening in the future. 
they've taken that and made a world that is incredibly magical. Like when you read magical texts and they describe magic, it's like, hello, that is exactly what uh, the metaverse and this world of the future is going to provide. A type of, even if we're talking about new age uh, sayings of manifestation, of how it's like, oh, you think it and then it happens. That is possible far more quickly in the metaverse than it is in this, you know, 3D like meat suit space. So we've gone from just imagining it to now making a hybrid through the digital. I'm just like, that is just magic. That is so much magic. Chowan, a question for you. What is the greatest or most memorable spell, digital or otherwise, that you've cast? I can talk about a recent spell that I think was extremely evocative and moving to me. And it happened mm-hmm. last year during the retrograde in Gemini. And it was a group ritual. Almost 100 people, I think, joined over wow. Zoom or wow. Crowdcast. Yeah. And it was a ritual that was done right at the moment that Mercury was Kazemi, right? Was in the heart of the sun. And it was also at that exact time, we sent an Ethereum transaction. So every time, for those who may not know about blockchain technology, so there's a blockchain. It's basically code. Uh, It's called Ethereum. And when you send Ethereum transactions, there's literally many ways you can do it. But one of the main ways to do it is that you're going to be sending somebody like actual ETH, right? It's like money to somebody else's wallet. You can do that as well um, when you're doing spells. But the cool thing about digital money is that because it's a digital thing, you can track it online and you can see the transaction and add in notes. Unlike when you're using cash, you know, you can't just like be like, oh, wait a second, let me put a a little sticky note here, like putting little notes about exactly what I bought and what, what, no. (laughs) But you can do, if you wanted to, you can do something similar to that when you're doing an ETH transaction because it is digital, it's purely digital. And so in that ETH transaction, which is basically, you know, I had two co-facilitators, Andre Burke and Rachel, who is known as Aeolian Heart, an astrologer. Um, And they were co-facilitating this ritual with me. And it was either me or Andre sending ETH to the other person. And it was like something like $8 because eight is, um, you know, part of the the holy numbers for Mercury. It was a Mercury ritual because Mercury was in retrograde, but it was Kazemi. And during that time, mythologically, when Mercury is Kazemi, it means that Mercury has entered into the chamber of the sun. So if you imagine the sun is like an emperor, this like the brightest star in our solar system, Mercury gets to go into this room. And I almost see it as like Mercury, the psychopomp, you know, has wings on their, their shoes. They talk to the gods. They talk to the humans. They can go into the underworld. They can travel fluidly between the dimensions. And during Kazemi, Mercury is coming into this room and going straight to the sun and has a one-on-one audience 
very intimate, almost like Mercury can go up to the sun and whisper in the sun's ear all the petitions. And so we created a petition for Mercury to whisper in the sun's ear. And that petition was put into the note section of this Ethereum transaction. It was with 100 people. And during that time, uh, we all chanted together. So just on so many levels, the fact that it was like a crowdcast thing, it was like basically like a group Zoom call, doing it on, you know, Ethereum, but we're doing an ancient, more traditional spell. Um, that to me was a very memorable spell, very memorable ritual. I have like full like truth bumps as you're saying this. Like <laughs> I can see Kristen's face too. Just like, <laughs> wow, what a cool, cool spell. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I love a good group ritual. Like there's nothing that really compares to the energy of working with people, especially that many people. It sounds amazing. And it could have only happened now because technology. There was Mm -hmm. no way to bring 100 people from all over the United States and Europe. And I think even there might have been people from Asia. Um, for all of us to come together and do this. Yeah, beaming in on the little screens. It's it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, to click through those pages on Zoom is a really surreal, special experience sometimes, like when you're in a big Zoom room. Yeah, yeah. It also showed me, it was a proof of concept, basically. Can rituals be done online? Can magic be done online? I had seen a paper beforehand that, Basically, most of the things that were considered magic done online was done in Sims or something like that. Um, And I was like, okay, I guess so. But I really wanted to see what happens if we do something that isn't so much like Sims related, which is kind of like using an avatar and a little bit more hybrid between more traditional and new technologies. And it was a really great hybrid. I'm sure in the future when the metaverse looks and feels more like hyper-reality. I think that will be a game changer. But right now, for me, I thought, okay, there's a huge obstacle. When you go into the metaverse currently, it's really hard to feel like you are not in the metaverse because visually it looks very much like the metaverse. It looks kind of like a digital video game or just like a video game, right? And for me... That has always been an issue because when I do magic, I'm trying to bring in as much realism as possible as in I'm almost trying to trick my mind. I'm almost doing the ritual to put my mind in a state where it literally believes the petition that I'm asking for can happen because there's so many things happening around it that makes it think, oh yeah, well, it's already happened or, oh yeah, it's going to happen in another second because I see evidence around me that this, I might have jumped into a parallel reality or something like that, right? You're literally convincing your mind, at least I am, uh, when I'm doing magic. So I can't do that right now in the metaverse. So being able to do this group ritual and to have the proof of concept, to me, was a really important after effect because I thought, okay, if we can do digital magic and it's on the blockchain, which means unlike petitions that you write on paper or even talismans that you make with gemstones, blockchain is even more durable because literally there's no wear and tear. There's no, even if it's gemstones uh, as talismans, a gemstone can get scratched. 
it can get lost. The chances of that happening on the blockchain, much, much less likely. And so I was like, this is a truly durable aspect of magic. All the things that our ancestors really wanted, they created. Um, I've, I've read somewhere that in Egypt, uh, which, by the way, was considered to be one of the most magical places in the ancient world. I believe that somewhere in, is it either uh, the Bible or somewhere where it says in Hebrew that if there were like 10 parts magic, I'm paraphrasing here. If there's 10 parts magic, Egypt got eight of those parts. Mm -hmm. So in Egypt, they did a lot of star, like uh, they did a lot of nighttime astrology. That's how sophisticated they were when it came to astrology. And there's many uh, hypotheses that the statues that we see, like the Sphinx, maybe even the pyramids, they served as a type of talisman to capture starlight as energy. So this is what our ancestors did because they're like, we want this energy and we want to make sure that it lasts. And it has lasted for eons. However, it did wear down. It did erode. But blockchain stuff, it will not erode. It will last in ways that I feel fulfills the dreams and aspirations of perhaps the Egyptian mages who were creating the Sphinx with the idea of we want this to last. Oh yeah, blockchain is going to last. Um, and that's actually a concept that I learned about while reading uh, the Bitcoin standard with, you know, Saif Din Amos. People love or hate that book. It is not a magic book. And yet so much of the grimoires, so much of the magic that I do is inspired by non-magical books. It's inspired by, you know, books on blockchain, books on prison experiments, books on whatever it is. So in that sense, being able to put all these concepts together, create a proof of concept and be like, this works. This works and it fulfills the the fundamental goals of the architect, architects of magic back 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, uh, to me, that was perhaps one of the most fulfilling parts. And there's something so magical about the name Ethereum, just like as a, mm -hmm. as a word to like, I'm not familiar. Like I, I know broad strokes about the blockchain, but I'm not, but to just hear like ether Ethereum, like there's something mm -hmm. so concretely magical about that word in, in the name even. I think a lot of people would be surprised how open so many of the people in the Ethereum space, not the Bitcoin, the Ethereum space are to magic. Uh, so many NFT artists, they identify as, if not blatantly, as a witcher and a cultist. They are very, if you say, hey, you're just like the mages of yore, they'll listen to it and be like, I'm down with that. Like, that is what I'm doing. I'm literally doing that. It would be hard to hear that and not be down with it, though. Like, <laughs> that's a pretty good sentence. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> but the converse is not always true. I find that yeah. people in the magic space are very, well, they're either in the pro-technology, pro-futurism, uh, pro-Web3 and crypto and NFT space, or they're very against it. Um, mm. Versus the sort of, you know, the non-binary thinking that I was talking about earlier, that seems to be more exemplified in the space that's filled with what are ostensibly engineers and digital artists. So these are not people who are doing necessarily, you know, like LBRP. And yet that 
magical thinking, that fluid thinking, the ability to think past binaries, to be visionaries, to think about the future and to think about what is fundamental. These are all things, what is liminal? These are all things that are super magical, the foundations of magic. And I find that in so many ways, that space, that Web3 Ethereum space is chock full of magicians, of mages. And uh, so for me, I'm just like, oh, the vocabulary is different. You know, maybe some of the things we do in our daily life is different, but what they're doing is magic too. And I appreciate that. So to return to your book for a moment here, in a section titled Motherland, you say that for new witches, the best place to begin their journey is through meeting their ancestors. And then you expand on that idea by saying, quote, our ancestral tree doesn't just include people. It's also the land where they lived, died, were colonized, starved, and survived. The flora and fauna of that land is made up of their ancestors before them, whose flesh and bones turn to dust and soil, end quote. Can you expand on that and also tell our listeners about Han? Sure. So first about this idea of networks in the environment. And this is not something that I'm inventing. Um, if you go online and, you know, I really need to create like a resources list but you will see a lot of um, environmental philosophy. And I'm not just talking about, oh, you know, you should just recycle and not. (laughs) We're talking about how the environment informs us and how we inform the environment um, and about how all the creatures on earth, how all the trees, how everything that is in existence is networked to another and what that means. And, um, you know, the person who is credited with developing this idea of like cyber feminism about, you know, back in, I think the nineties or eighties, it's been, you know, we've evolved from that point, but kind of brought forth the idea or made it popular is I believe like an eco philosopher, like an environmental philosopher. So this is all tied in with this idea of like, of course, everything about us is connected Um, this is, you know, I feel as though this is very much like a matrix moment of like, you take the red pill and you're just like, oh yeah, you know, um, yeah, this is all an illusion. So it's very much this idea that, okay, you need to start with your body first. And in fact, I would say the reason why I can go so deep into digital magic is because I fully surrendered to the fact that body first, whether it's glamour magic, the occult body, ancestral It's to prioritize the body as a portable altar. It is an altar that you can move with you always, that is always with you. It is an altar that if you respect, uh, it is just as respectful as if you dust and keep the altar for Hikate or whoever else in your home clean. It's the same thing. Um, It's your ancestral altar. And once you go really deep into that, you notice a lot of other things, which is this body is just one of many bodies in the world. And of all the bodies in the world, there's more than just human bodies. And then of all just like the carbon-based bodies, you're like, oh, that are, you know, considered to be life forms. There's inanimate forms. And then there's stardust. And then you just expand it and expand it until, you know, just everything goes back to the Big Bang. And you're like, ah, okay, got it, got it. This idea of network means also that time 
it's much more what the indigenous people would say, which is it's circular more than it's linear. Uh, just like the body is more networked than it is just a solo thing. Han is the acknowledgement of what would be called intergenerational trauma. And again, different vocabulary, same concept. I find that a lot of psychology, a lot of modern psychology, they use different vocabulary, but they're talking about so many similar things as to magic. And I'm sure everybody has heard about how back in days of yore, there was a lot of undiagnosed mental illness that now we know, ah, this is schizophrenia. Ah, this is this. Um, so the sciences, whether it's, you know, sciences like psychology and sociology or hard sciences, oftentimes they augment what magic has been talking about because magic often talks about the invisible. And Han is a very pithy word in Korean but there's words or ideas like this in every culture, which says that something happens to you in this life and it builds hatred. It builds rage and it's not resolved and it just grows. And what I really like about Han though, is that number one, it acknowledges that a grudge can sometimes be huge and deep, but also that grudge is where so much creativity and art comes from because Han doesn't just see this grudge or hatred as a negative thing. It isn't something to be bypassed. It isn't something that necessarily needs to be quote unquote fixed. There's a very famous Korean movie um, and now a musical um, and it's based around the story of a father who purposely blinds his daughter, gives her poison so she becomes blind to teach her Han because they're a, a family of traveling musicians and they sing a type of Korean traditional music. It's called Pansori. And Pansori, if you go on YouTube and you look at the videos, it's very different from this sugary sweet K-pop. Pansori is often described as being guttural. Um, oftentimes people can watch it, not understand a single word and they'll just burst into tears because it has to come straight from the gut, from the emotions. And this movie where the, guy, the dad, he blinds his daughter, was him being like, you will never be a great singer. You will never be a great singer until you understand Han. And ultimately in the movie, she accepts and she takes that Han and alchemizes it. So instead of utterly destroying her, she actually can build upon it. Uh, and that's what I really like about that word, Han. It's not just a, oh my God, no, can't deal with it. You know, this is actually, okay, we have it. And this is rocket fuel. This is something that is going to make us into something bigger than ourselves. So it's not something to necessarily be afraid of. And it's also accepted as a normal thing. It's like, oh yeah, Han, of course. You know, you're not a bad person if you have Han. Han is Han. And you say that you view Han as a blessing for a witch because it was like, for you, electricity to power up your magic. And I just really love this concept. So how do we integrate Han once we're aware of it? Um, or how are you able to do that? In the book, I've talked about uh, certain practices that I've done. One of my favorites is called Feeding Your Demons. And it's based upon Chud, 
and it was developed by Lama Sotrim Alione. And it's not the pure Chud tradition. It's made accessible for people living in a modern age, for people who come from Western culture. Um, and it's to make friends with your demons. And there's a YouTube video somewhere that's completely free. Um, it's where she, literally Lama Sultrim Alioni, she leads you on the meditation. She guides you. She's actually leading an entire group. There's tons of free resources on how to do this. Um, for me, shadow work is absolutely vital because a lot of people who are doing magic and not getting the results that they want. Because ultimately, I think a lot of people, they do magic for practical results. Some people do magic as a religious practice. For me, it's not religious. It's truly about, okay, how can I leverage this energy to make my life more what I want it to be, to give myself agency? And I think a lot of people do that as well. So a lot of people will try to do magic for that express reason and not get the results because what they're not realizing is that magic is not rational and magic is if energy based, then it's really dealing with energy and that Han, that shadow side of yourself, it kind of runs the show. And this is also something that I've learned from doing lots of therapy, again, different vocabulary, but same concepts. So I think therapy, inner child work, feeding your demons, doing ancestral veneration, these are all different ways from different angles that you can start integrating and alchemizing that intergenerational trauma, that Han. There's other things that I didn't even mention in the book that can also be utilized. I just mentioned those because those are the ones that I personally have had experience with. There's also um, energy modalities. Like I'm a huge fan of yeah. EFT, emotional freedom technique of TAT, tapas acupressure technique. Before EFT became like gatekept, um, there was this guy named Gary who developed it. When he passed away, his daughter took over and now everything is like a gazillion dollars to get information about. But mm. before that happened, I was really studying EFT. Um, I even considered getting certified in it. Um, and this idea that your body is a battery. Again, going back to the physical body. Your body is a battery. And of course, Eastern medicine totally acknowledges this acupressure, acupuncture. So oftentimes when I do magic, it isn't just oh, sitting down with a pretty altar and flowers or chanting or, you know, it isn't just that. Sometimes when I do magic, people would be shocked because I am dancing around. I am doing EFT or, T or TAT at the same time. These are modalities where it's kind of like acupressure. Um, I'm doing all these things involving my physical body in order to integrate my shadow. For me, integrating the shadow, it really helps to involve the physical body in it somehow. And that's how I've done it. And once I've been able, and you know, this is a lifelong thing, but once I was able to integrate, I would say, I'm going to estimate 30% of my, my shadow, 30% of it. That's when I think I really saw things move. And my guess is that probably for a lot of people, it's 0%, 10%, maybe. Um, people think they're doing shadow work, but shadow work it's so difficult and so uncomfortable that, and also it really should be done 
in a safe space with the guidance of a therapist, I really think that a good therapist is completely and utterly like a necessary part of the witchcraft journey, uh, the occult journey. Um, but I would say also that for those who are not able to you know, have access to a therapist, and I totally get it. I didn't have health insurance for a lot of years. And America is a system where, you know, it's just not the norm a lot of times. Sometimes we need to find others, whether they are role models that we find on YouTube, on social media, maybe it's a friend, whoever it is, just somebody who can provide some sort of safe space and is the version of like touching grass. You know, like somebody who's kind of there to make sure you don't go off the deep end um, to help you do it. I also feel as though when you start getting deep into magic, the saying that the teacher appears when the student is ready, you'd be shocked at what happens when people start doing magic. They thought, oh, I can't get healthcare, I can't do magic because I can't find a therapist. These things start to slowly come into your life in, you know, in just ways that people wouldn't expect. Once you are just very authentically starting to try to live your best life through magic. So that was a very long-winded way of saying like, uh, Han is not a bad thing. Han is important. Don't push it away. And don't push away your ancestors. Your ancestors are part of that Han. And as you elevate yourself through Han and elevate your own body that alters your ancestors, your ancestors are also being elevated. People think that ancestors are like, they die, then that's it. They never change after that. Or that demons or spirits, they are what they are in these texts written in the 1700s back in like, you know, the year 1 AD or like <laughs> 1 CE. That may not be the case. Things are always evolving. Uh, Jason Miller, he who, it, you know, he is one of the occultists that I really admire he has said, like, who's to say, like, the 72 demons or the 72 angels, like, a big part of, you know, the Goetic tradition. And they're known as, like, prince, duke, king. They have these, like, titles because that's when the grimoires were written. But Jason has said to me and to others, like, who's to say that things haven't changed in, like, 500 years, right? Maybe they've gotten, like, past the titles. Maybe they're doing something totally different. And if we can think about how everything in the world's changing, then of course our ancestors, they absolutely can change as well. And to be co-creating an evolution uh, with our ancestors, not just for our sake, but for the ancestors' sake, that is a type of healing as well. So please don't ignore your ancestors and please don't ignore Han. Death changes people, I would think. I, I have to say that death is one of those things where I know we're all headed towards it. I think about it every single day because I also practice stoicism. And uh, one of the tenets of stoicism is to always think of death. And that kind of puts everything into perspective. And let's face it, one of the reasons why a lot of people get into magic is because of this concept of death and spirits and you know, all that stuff. I don't know exactly what happens with death and stuff, but uh, I do know that when I respect and venerate my ancestors, and I have it in my cultural lineage because 
South Korea, and I'm sure North Korea as well, just any Confucian culture, they're very big about venerating the ancestors. Like one of the biggest insults that you can give is to curse the ancestors. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I'm venerating the ancestors, I have noticed that I have become more of myself. And venerating ancestors could be as simple as instead of eating junk food, you eat something that's more wholesome. It could be as easy as instead of accepting a toxic situation, uh, you decide, no, I don't want to put myself in that danger. Anytime that you respect yourself and your body, you're respecting the DNA that was handed down to you through the suffering, the tragedy, the trauma, the sacrifice of your ancestors. And your ancestors are probably just like, whew, thank God. You know, <laughs> everything that I did was worth it because I see my descendant um, living up to the DNA. So ancestral veneration doesn't have to be complicated. It could be anything that is considered self-care as well. I would love to talk about demons a little bit more now, if that's cool. Um, On your TikTok, you speak a bit about working with demons, and I'd love to hear more about your practice and also your perspectives on demon magic. People get really, really weirded out when I start talking about demon magic. I love it. (laughs) To me, I'm very, I understand, but I'm also confused because coming from an atheist background, to me, it's very obvious that spirits are all just aspects of myself. I don't believe in this idea of spirits are these external intelligent entities. Um, Some people do. And I'm totally fine with them believing what they believe, but in my personal belief, they're not. They're what in psychology and just common parlance, what we would call archetypes. So to me, I'm just like, oh, well, if I'm working with, let's say, Paimon, or or, let's say Citri, a demon that is well known for lust magic, well, then I'm working with the aspect of myself that is sex positive and lustful. And we all have these aspects in us. So it seems as though the ancient cultures, what they did in my atheist perspective is they externalized things that today we would internalize. They decided, okay, um, we're going to say that, and maybe that's the reason why that they were considered quote unquote primitive by other cultures that came after them, because this is what children do, right? Children will externalize things that are inside them because they don't have the capacity yet to really analyze them. And analysis is just, you know, just such a, to me, analysis has its uses, but to me is an extremely dangerous and sometimes completely antithetical to magic. And so when people are doing demon magic, when I'm doing demon magic, I am working with this archetype that is actually a part of me and that these ancient cultures have externalized using names. I mean, when we do inner child work, anybody who goes to like an expensive Manhattan therapist and does inner child work, oftentimes will be asked, what's the name of your child? You know, can we perhaps think of a teddy bear or like a piece of clothing or something to represent that child? And then you place that item, that external thing in front of you and you talk to it like they're an actual thing, like an actual person. I mean, to me, I'm just like, oh, well, maybe that's what these ancient cultures did. Sea tree 
was externalized and whatever else. And then, of course, Abrahamic religion came along and was just like, wait a second, there's only one God that you, literally only one that's okay, everything else is sus, totally suspect. And then from there on, there was this myth that demons are dangerous, that demons uh, will take your soul, that demons will ruin your life. And I think that there's a very large Christian talk uh, contingent on TikTok, and they're just spreading all this stuff. And, you know, sometimes it's, we all get spooked, right? When you have these people who literally passionately believe that working with demons is super dangerous, and they just want to help, like they literally believe it, you can see the authenticity and the good intentions in their eyes. Um, So I never get offended. At the same time, I'm just like, you guys do realize that I'm an atheist witch, and I believe these are externalizations. In my mind, they're kind of made up. So to me, they're not a big deal. And if anything, I consider them to be one of the best hacks in terms of, if we want to talk about it, um, life hacking, you know, um, psychology, if we want to talk about psychology and like neuro-linguistic programming, like demon work, call it whatever you want. You want to call it demon work? You want to call it NLP? You want to call it whatever? Demon work is such a powerful way to reprogram a lot of aspects of ourselves that are shadowy, a lot of aspects of ourselves that have been pushed away, um, have been judged. And I'm just like, why would I see that as anything but a positive thing? And so that's why I talk about demon magic. Now, for fun, because I think it's hilarious, sometimes I'll just be like, oh yeah, demons, oh yeah. Oh God, you know, careful, right? And I do that almost with like a wink wink. But deep down, I'm just like, no, demons are actually a very powerful way to deal with shadow work and a very powerful life hack. To me, that's one of the most useful things about demon work and also angel work. The fact that you can talk about things like, oh, inner child work and archetype stuff, and sometimes people will just fall asleep, right? It's boring. It's overanalytical. Can't relate. Start talking about it like angels and demons. People can relate because who doesn't relate to an external deity who is beautiful and deals with sex? Who doesn't relate to this powerful being made out of light who might be an alien, a psychopathic alien who like is going to ruin your life, right? Then now we're talking movie. We're talking cinematic. And now we can actually talk about, okay, what are some things that you can do to change your life utilizing these rituals, which are just kind of like ways of doing hacks, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, but in the language of like, let's make it more cinematic. I love that. And also on TikTok, you speak about your atheist Hecate witchcraft practice. And I love this perspective on archetypal work. Can you share a little bit more about this with our listeners? For me, Hecate is the, and everybody always says, how do you say your name? And how do you spell her name? And it's like, there's so many different ways. Hecate, Hecate, Ikat. Like, there's so many ways. Um, My work with Hecate, sometimes I call her Hecate, has been extremely life-transforming. The work that I do is based upon the the arcana that Jason Miller teaches. It's the sorcery of Hecate and Jason Miller was a 
Well, he's an ordained monk. He's a nakpa. So he's been empowered to do all these things that monks in like Nepal and Tibet can do. Uh, but he can also, you know, just have like a regular life. So that's why they're called nakpas. Um, and he incorporates a lot of that into the Hecatean arcana that he does. And in this arcana, you become more like Hecate. At least I do. I know some people, because they see Hecate as a being outside of themselves, they do it a little bit differently. But for me, I thought, I want to be like Hecate. Hecate, like, let's let's talk a little bit about what a bad bee that Hecate is, right? <laughs> yes, the hellhounds. Are you kidding? Yeah, she's everything. <laughs> she's a baddie. I want to be, and she can't be bothered by mm-hmm. people who are disrespectful. She's sort of like this perfect combination of like Cardi B, Beyonce, Taylor Swift in her empowered era now. (laughs) She's like all these archetypes of a strong, modern woman. And I was like, I want to be her. Like if she were like a person, I would so want to be her best friend. I want to learn from her. I want to be, she's my role model. She is my role model. And the thing is, is that sure, we can say, oh, this is like a role model. And you know, that South Park thing of what would Brian Boitano do? So it's like, yeah, what would Hecate do? Better yet, why don't we do magic? And magic scrambles up like your sense of like reality in a lot of ways and kind of gives you a way to go deeper into something. It kind of cuts through and and sort of like uh, jumps over your conscious mind and goes straight to the subconscious or even the unconscious. And I'm like, yeah, instead of just what would Hecate do and be like my role model, how do I do magic so that I become more and more like Hecate so that the lines blur more and more? That this archetype that already exists in me, because we all have that Hecatean archetype in ourselves, how can I bring that out even more and blur the lines between that archetype and myself more consciously and bring it to the forefront? And I see a huge change in just my, my personality, which we all know is very malleable. Like personality is something that changes, right? My personality has absolutely changed. And this was like in my late thirties, right? This wasn't when I was young and fresh. In my late thirties, I was able to change in significant ways, not through consciously analyzing and saying, Hecate is my role model. Let me just act like her. It was through magic. So magic involves shadow work. It involves doing you know, like things like neuro-linguistic programming, but in like a traditional way. It involves all these things so that subconsciously and unconsciously, you start to believe that you are kind of like Hecate. My personality has changed because the way that I work with Hecate is me almost like melding together with her. That has been one of the greatest gifts that magic and the occult has given me. Because instead of spending years or perhaps a lifetime just looking up to somebody and just wishing, I could be more like them. I truly feel as though parts of me became more and more like her because the parts of me that were already like her bloomed more and more thanks to magic. And I don't think that there is another modality, even in psychology, even in the life hacking, brain hacking world that comes close to what magic can do. So I'm very grateful to magic for that. So I know that Kristen and I would love to stay here for hours and talk about demons and Hecate and 
digital witchcraft, but we are so sadly running out of time. So do you have any final words of advice for our listeners, the witches out there on the web? Wow. (laughs) Pressure's on. (laughs) The more that I do this witchcraft occult stuff, the more modalities that I learn, like my new favorite modality in terms of self-discovery has evolved from astrology, which I still love, to human design, the more that I realize that we all have this very unique path. But I would say that for those who resonate with what I say and the path that I've been on, if I could give myself advice, if I could travel back in time and go back to me in 2017, 2016, 2015, when I was just starting this journey, you know, I would say that it's from a practical point of view, it is not a bad thing whatsoever to get as much self-knowledge as possible through things like astrology, through things like human design, through things like tarot card readings, through things like geomancy. And to start doing it from there, because what I found was that when I did a lot of, uh, when I had a lot of astrology readings, and I always went to people who came highly recommended who I resonated with, and I went to a lot. And I started noticing a pattern, a theme of what they were saying and what I resonated with. And I was able then to just be like, you know what, instead of spending the next 15 years figuring this out, I basically got a map, a shortcut. This is great. And I thought to myself, "Mm, if I had only had this when I was 19, 20, 21 years old, that would have been awesome. Because the thing is, even at that young age, and people are always just like, you're young, you don't know. I'm just like, I think young people know there's something that when you hear it, you may not have heard it before, but when somebody brings it up or you hear it, you're like, yeah, that's me. I totally resonate with this. At least I resonate with it now, which means that even if it changes, it's like the stepping stone, for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So I wish that I had heard it or I had been able to get these shortcuts, these maps, um, basically laying out like, hey, society's going to tell you one thing, but the map of you says, you know, just don't even bother with like what society says, because the map of you is pointing in a very different direction. And there's nothing wrong with that. A good astrology reading, good human design reading, all that is very empowering. So I would say that would be one of the first things that pop into my mind in terms of advice, practical advice, in terms of a more, I don't know, esoteric uh, piece of advice. I would say that one of the things that I am now seeing the value of is this idea of like space. Like when I was first starting in witchcraft, I didn't give myself a lot of space. I saw witchcraft as almost like this, like a certificate program. You know, I wanted to learn all of it. And I wanted to have the facts down and I almost wanted to earn badges or whatever. You know, I wanted to like certify myself and because it was a very hierarchical way of thinking about things. To me, I wasn't a quote unquote good witch. I wasn't like a skilled occultist until I had all this accumulated stuff. And I think that accumulated stuff is vitally important. But why is it vitally important? It's important because what it does is it gives you grounding and basis for what you're doing 
that you know is coming from deep inside yourself. You're not reinventing the wheel when you learn. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is we're trying to gain wisdom, and wisdom comes with space. Wisdom means that you learn from the people, the giants who came before you, because, you know, the most obvious example of an unwise person is a young kid who's just like, I'm not going to listen to you, and then they burn their finger or whatever, right? And then you hear things like, oh, with age comes wisdom. You learn to listen to the wisdom before you. But also wisdom isn't just about listening to other people. Wisdom is also learning to listen to yourself. Now, listening to yourself is the hardest part of all because you don't know what part is society talking, what part is conditioning talking, and what part is actually you talking. To learn how to differentiate between the two, it takes space. It's hard to take that space until you literally take space, which is why people are in a big rush I want to become really good at what you have in six months or whatever. It took me four years. That's kind of like a bachelor's degree. It took four years. And then plus I took off a lot of time, like gaps in between, because I needed to integrate. And I always felt like a failure during those times. I was just like, oh my God, I've fallen behind. You know, I'm just a bad witch. Falling off the wagon. Oh, you know, like I can't do this. How do other people do this? It turns out, that it was during these gaps that all the real, you know, like how muscle grows with rest. That's where all the important stuff happened because that's when I actually got to integrate and apply the principles of witchcraft into my life. So I would say space is a, the biggest lesson, uh, piece of advice that I would give myself as well. I love all that. And before we go, what upcoming projects are you excited about and where can listeners find your work? Hmm. So I would say that everything that I do, talking about space, (laughs) is also me honoring my human design, which is the fact that I kind of do things based upon how I'm feeling. So When I say like, oh, I'm going to do this and this, I may change my mind later. So I'm just like, okay, uh, I'm just going to say that in general, um, I'm thinking about doing a class, like an online class based around my book. We'll see how I feel about that. Um, And I'm probably going to be doing some different projects based around educating people about the 72 angels and demons in the future. We'll see how I feel about that. Wait, can I ask what your human design profile is? Sure. I am a 1-3 manifesting generator with emotional authority. So basically that means I need to try things out, break things, and then be like, oh yeah. And sometimes I have to eat poison mushrooms and be like, oh, wait a second, don't eat that, and then drop dead. But you know, whatever. Uh, A manifesting generator just means that I need to have this gut feeling inside that says yes. And for me, it's not verbal. To me, I will literally lean forward I will sometimes get so excited that I'll do this. Sometimes when I'm talking to people, I'll get very fidgety and then I'll like literally sit up and down or like stand up a little bit and sit down like this. Um, I will say, hmm, like I'll make noises. This is very pre-verbal. And these are things that I don't think about. And when that comes out, I know, bingo, this is the right path for me. It's a sign of excitement. 70% of the population has that in them. Um, They're generators or manifesting generators like me. 
Um, and emotional authority basically means uh, when I'm in a good mood, everything is roses. When I'm in a bad mood, everything is going to fail. So I can't rush into decisions. And for me to just say something right now, it may be true right now, but it may not be true later. So, <laughs> so these are some basic principles of human design. So I try to honor that. And the more that I honor it, because this book, uh, Spellbound, it came about because of human design, as in human design, like my human design says, if you try to proactively, you know, get an agent, put in a book proposal and stuff like that, it's not going to work if you are that type. And I'm that type. Total opposite of what society told me. And I was like, oh, okay. And so you're supposed to do this thing called an experiment. You're experimenting with your type and just trying to see, you're trying to break the system and say, I don't believe in human design. So I'm going to like, just pretend like I do with the idea that I'm going to look for every single way that it fails. And so I was just like, I'm not doing anything. Do I want to write a book? Sure. But I'm not going to do anything, which is what all the blogs, society, everyone tells you you should do if you really want something. You need to go out and get it. Well, I'm not going to do any of that. Not even close. And then I get an email literally out of the blue, right? And basically this publishing company was like, um, we want you to write a book. And I was like, um, cool story. I need to think about it. Because remember, I'm emotional authority. I spent like a month. They were chasing me for a month. Total opposite, right, of what society tells you. Oh, my God, you know, they could withdraw this, this book deal or whatever at any moment, okay? Like, they gave it to you. Why are you being so standoffish, right? You should be like, yes, I love it. Thank you. And sign. And I was like, yeah, No. I totally honored my human design and I was able to get the book deal. Uh, I was able to get the book deal for more than I was initially offered in terms of advance. Um, and here I am today. And it all happened because along the way, I just honored my design. So that's why I'm saying like all these projects I have in the future, I'm going to see how I feel, but without a doubt, um, I'm very excited right now about possibly doing a class with the book. I'm excited about that too. And so if people are interested, um, should they follow you on your website, Instagram, TikTok, all the places? Yes. I don't have a website because I'm a little bit lazy like that. Uh, but I would say, you know, just look, Google my name. My name is pretty unusual and you'll see all my socials. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune in to next week's episode for a discussion about pop culture and witchcraft. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be or something better. Until next time. Mm-hmm.